getting someone on who's not a Tom Petty fan, I think, yeah. is an interesting proposition, right? But obviously, like I said to you offline, getting somebody who I know has an excellent ear for music, is a musician, you know, has a background in music appreciation and being able to critique it. I think that at least then you get some place to go with it because if it was just someone who'd never heard of Tom Petty, but you know, didn't know how to talk about music, then it would be a little bit. I like that one. I didn't like that one. Right. It's almost yeah. a bit noisy. You know I mean? so. Yeah, exactly. It's a little loud for my ears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with you. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. Though. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to it. I just, I just love how. I keep getting invited to things that I know nothing about. Like I, yeah. I'm literally like the the least knowledgeable guy on the Van Halen <laughs> show. Uh, Aerosmith, I knew two albums really well, a couple of hits and nothing else. Uh, I was just, we we just recorded a backtracks for Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which I haven't seen. It, it just, <laughs> it, it's just amazing. It's like the only place I feel at home is the Deep Purple podcast because those guys I grew up with. Yeah. You know, but everybody else, I'm just like, yeah, okay, I'll, I, I'll love to dig in and talk about it. But I'm always open to it. That's the thing is I, I'm not like, oh, I don't know anything about that. So I don't want to do it. I'm like, I want to learn something and have my horizons broadened a little bit too. Well, that's a good segue into, I was going to ask you, because you do a lot of different things. And I, would, I always sort of, you know, I, re, I sort of regard myself a little bit as a re restless creative. That's why I always said, but I would say that you're, you're bordering on sort of the polymath renaissance, man, because you're a <laughs> novelist, a humorist. A musician, songwriter, podcaster, like there's so many different things you do. And I made a conscious, I've told people, I've told other people this, but I made a conscious decision about seven, eight years ago to stop saying no. If someone says, Hey, do you want to do this? Well, yeah, sure. So my friend Randy, the guy I do the Queen podcast with, once he said, okay, We're doing this um show, we're closing the show at the reggae festival. Um, for the encore for the last two songs, do you want to get dressed up in an inflatable dinosaur costume and come out and dance to the dance floor? I'm like, Absolutely, Samuel. Why not? Yeah. Who says hey, no to that? Exactly. Right. So just <laughs> say yes. So how do you, like, let's start there then. So how do you, what's your background in sort of music? Let's start with music. Maybe you grew up, you didn't grow up in Vegas where you live now, right? So no, no, I was born just outside of Detroit. Um, started playing guitar when I was six. Uh, and, and the, I don't know if you are old enough to remember this toy, but the magical musical thing which was sort of a, a battery operated stick that just had colorful buttons that were different notes and you could yeah. get a songbook. Yeah. So I, I started on that and uh, guitar. I didn't really get along with guitar very well. Um, for my seventh birthday, my grandfather got me a toy drum set from a garage sale for about five bucks yeah. and fell in love with drums immediately. And that became uh, my primary instrument and uh, that I still play to this day. So that was, so that was the beginnings of it. And so what was the music like around the Haskin household and what sort of stuff were your parents listening to? Were they musical? A lot of 60s and 70s music, a lot of Motown. Yeah. Um, you know, Supremes, Four Tops, that kind of stuff, which I absolutely adore to this day. Yeah. Um, it, it was great because it was it was simple. And, you know, before progressive music really existed, it was just straightforward, great singing, great feeling songs. So I think I learned a lot about how music should feel, how you should get the emotion out of it. Yeah. Um, you know, what music should do for you. And then once I heard, you know, once MTV came out, then it was all about, okay, now it's how crazy can we make it? What cool synth sounds do we have? Yeah. Um, really just expanded my world dramatically and uh, found Rainbow. Uh, they were uh, Stone Cold was the big videos because Straight Between the Eyes had come out and yeah. fell in love with that album. They were the first band that I I started getting their back catalog. Like, okay, what are all their albums? And we didn't have the internet back then, so it was yep. like music <laughs> books and resources, you know. And asking um, other people, <laughs> yeah, and asking people. 
and uh and then from there when the uh when they did the live concert uh live between the eyes in texas on mtv found out uh that that richie was in deep purple so that was then the floodgates really opened and yeah. then it was emerson lake and palmer king crimson uh uriah heap you know all these other bands that came into play and uh boy i mean that became my world after that a lot of english bands in there hey Oh yeah, not necessarily enough. So I, I don't think I've ever asked that before. Were Deep Purple and Rainbow were they big over here? Like I know since you've been gone, probably was a radio hit everywhere. Oh yeah, but were, they, uh, were they were they big in North America? Not not as much as Europe, I don't think. When Deep yeah. Purple started out, they were huge in America and didn't take off in England very much at all. Yeah, uh, which is really weird. But Hush was a huge success over here in the states. Uh, but eventually they found their footing in Europe. Uh, Rainbow, I think they had already had a pretty solid following just with Richie, uh, Rich, Richie's fame from Purple. So they kind of started off well. And then with Ronnie James Dio and Man on the Silver Mountain, yeah. um, right off the bat, I think they they had some pretty decent success. But of course, once they went commercial on the Down to Earth album, that really helped with the radio play and yeah, that sort of thing. So listen, you listen to all these things, like I said, Motown, that's a different skill set, especially as a drummer, right? Because that's not oh, yeah. that's not four on the floor rock. You're getting some syncopation in there. There's some interesting things in there, some great plays. It's all those great yeah. session players, right? So you've got like, mm -hmm. I don't know, four or five drummers who played on probably 19,000 of those Motown classics. Right. So how do you drift then into, did you sort of form bands at school or playing live? How did playing live kind of come into your life? Uh, it was mostly just jams with my brother. He was a guitar player okay. um, for a long time. We our, our music tastes were incredibly parallel, so that made it really easy for, hey, let's do this song. Okay, yeah, I like that song, you know. Um, there wasn't much need for compromise, so we just played whatever we wanted to, and it was everything from Purple and Rainbow to Jethro Tull to Uriah Heep to uh, Zeppelin, you know, all the fun stuff. Yeah. And um, uh, but, but you're right about Motown because there was it was a lot more Ringo than it was ACDC, right? There was a yep. lot more of that swing feel, not just yep. exactly on the beat all the time, which which I, I think greatly helped me, although I had no idea at the time what benefit I was getting out of it. I wouldn't until years later. Um, but yeah, that's how it started. And then we did, uh, he and I did a concert at our high school for uh, muscular dystrophy. That was like my big first live performance. Cool. And, uh, you know, heart beating in the throat. Oh my God, I can't do this, but I'm going <laughs> to walk out there and do it anyway kind of thing. And, you know, you get, you get a song or two in and then you're fine. Then it's just rehearsal. Yeah. You're just playing with your friend then, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I, I did, I've played three songs live my entire life and it was the same thing. I was nervous as hell until mm -hmm. I let us in. So as soon as I, sit and I look over at Chris, he plays his first chord, everyone drops in. It's like, yeah, then it's all, now it's just muscle memory. I've done this a thousand times. This is just fun. This mm -hmm. is playing. Now I get why people do this because this is right. fun. It, yeah. It's 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 an adrenaline rush like nothing else I can explain because it really is its own unique thing. And I think especially as the drummer, because you're the foundation, you're the one that's keeping everybody on time and everyone yep. together. And uh, no one's really looking at you because they're all looking at the singer or the guitar player anyway. Yeah. So you can just kind of... <laughs> you know, be in your space and and do what you do. It's a lot of fun. The The trick to playing live as a drummer, though, is to really watch your uh, count and tempo because you're all excited. Yeah. You're, you know, you want to play at a thousand miles an hour, no matter what it is, because you're <laughs> just filled with the adrenaline. And uh, so that's that's the big thing I caution drummers about yeah. when you start learning to play live is really watch your tempos. Growing up, my dad played in pretty popular draw sort of pub bands, you know, just, just mm -hmm. cover bands. Um, and they, they, they used to do Lion Eyes by the Eagle, which is six and a half minutes, something like that. Mm -hmm. They got this 19-year-old drummer in. They used to rip through it in four and a half minutes. 
Oh my He's God. Going double turn because they're like, slow them down, Tony, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sure. This needs a double bass part, doesn't it? <laughs> but that, but I... that's the trip. And, and that's why I don't like listening to live albums that much because you're not there. You don't yes. have the same energy and the adrenaline. So everything becomes out of context for me. Um, there's some I like because I grew up with them, but as I've as I've become a live player, I've really gotten away from listening to live music just because I don't I, I don't feel in touch with it. I, I've always been exactly the same. There's a few exceptions, and the artist we're talking about tonight is definitely one of them. But what I find is, especially you know, obviously you're on a, a great podcast, Backtracks Aerosmith with uh, Corey Morissette and John Mariano, mm-hmm. and I don't like Aerosmith live like the recording is live to me it's all about same with david lee roth in van halen right he's a performer mm-hmm. so when you take that performance element away and all you're left with is the voice yeah. and it's not always great you think well i don't know if i want to listen to this because tyler isn't he's not a great live singer i don't mm-hmm. think all the time maybe he was back in the 70s early 70s and you know into the early 80s but i mean some of the later stuff is like oh geez that's rough yeah, it really depends on the night or the moment, I mm-hmm. should say. And and a lot of that, I think, does have to do a lot with the drug use and the, you know, exhaustion and all yeah. that, um, because he he's a good singer. He has the talent to do it. But I think there's a lot of stuff that gets in the way. Plus, I, I don't think they always get great live recordings either. No. But but you're right. They're a very visual band. I mean, you yeah. you could listen to Alice Cooper live. Or you could experience Alice Cooper live. And I say experience as opposed to see because it's a whole have you ever seen him? I saw I took my my youngest daughter is an Alice Cooper fan and we got two second row dead center when they came through Saskatoon with oh, nice. Nita Strauss and with the I mean it was like mm-hmm. I said, that's that's theater to me. That's Shakespeare, it's vaudeville, yeah. it's it's throwing everything, it's throwing the kitchen sink and everything. The guy basically invented that style of performing, really, didn't he? From what I understand. Mm-hmm. And I saw I saw him the first time on Halloween night in Detroit, which was just, I mean, it was amazing. He pulled out all the stops. Yeah. But what gets me about him and that you'll never get this on a record is you really feel like everyone on his stage is a puppet that he's controlling. Yeah. And I've, there's nothing else like that. And you just don't get that on a live record. You can enjoy the music to an extent, but yeah. you're not going to get the experience. Even if you watch it on video, it's not the same. And that's where anyone I'll just throw in because it is a Tom Petty podcast. And that's one where yes. they did. So Petty did the, you know, they did a 20 night run at the Fillmore. Mm-hmm. So they'd done, they did Wildflowers and then did this album called She, Sounds of Music from She's the One, the, the movie. And it was sort of, because it was a soundtrack album, Tom didn't feel like it was really a full Heartbreakers album. So he wasn't sure if he wanted to tour it. And they were kind of getting a little bit tired of going out and just playing the greatest hit stuff. And they're on that sort of treadmill. Yeah. So they thought, you know what? If we go to San Francisco and we get 20 dates at the Fillmore, then what we can do is we can do, you know, the 10, 12 songs from the, the greatest hits. We can do some of those, but then we can just have a lot of fun. And so they right. broke out in those 20 dates. They did something like 120 covers. And that's, you wow. know, they're doing Bo Diddley and they're doing The Stones and they're doing everybody. The the, mm-hmm. the, the guess who, or not the guess who, the, um, oh, what's the name of the band? The Irish band, oh, for the love of God. I can't remember the name. Anyway. Well, but the they guess who would have been interesting though guess, to, to yeah. hear that. <laughs> But they go back and they just, because that's their roots, right? They're those old yeah. rock and roll songs. And if you're a good band, all you need to know really is what key are we in? Watch the leader. He's going to cue us in for the solos and the breaks oh, and yeah. the bridge and everything. So there's that sort of, there's that element of it being this this kind of almost this free for all jam mm-hmm. where, you know, and this was released, you know, last year. 
and Tom's been so you know there's no overdubs there that's just live off the board so that mm. one I like because it captures a real snapshot of what that band looked like at that moment in time so it's not a one night performance but it's a, it's a snapshot of this band about where they are so yeah I like that I like and, and we get bands here in Vegas doing those residencies where they'll do yeah. a week or two weeks or sometimes you know three or four weeks and they really do get to experiment and play and do different things every because they want people to come back especially like yeah. us locals if you're going to be here for a month yeah we can go see you but give us a reason to come see you again awesome okay well you know what let's dig into a little bit of tom petty i'll tell yeah. people we've, i've kind of come up with this idea and i threw it at scott because i got this idea actually i still i, I steal all my my good ideas for podcasts right um <laughs> the guys from in the lap of the pods which is a brilliant brilliant queen podcast they did a thing where they brought in two people one was a friend and the other guy i don't know where they found him i don't know if he was sort of a, an acquaintance or a friend of a friend but they said they weren't queen fans and they said, we're going to give you 10 songs. We want you to record your thoughts on each song. And then they sort of did a, a reaction to that. So they would play back, you know, this is the first song. This is what such and body said. said. This is what the other person said. And then they'll sort of comment on it. And I thought, that's a really good idea. I like that because there's going to be a lot of people around who, especially with Tom Petty, because he's such a big artist, especially in the States, that most people are going to know, you know, I mean, I know that you, you said you don't know his, his work, but you know American Girl, you know Free Fall. And there's certain songs that- oh, yeah. Right. They're just ubiquitous. Everyone knows those songs. Sure. But to dig in with to, to dig into some of the other stuff, the non-hits or some of the deeper cuts with someone who I know who has a fantastic ear for music and can articulate what they think about it and what they see, and maybe be a little bit more critical than someone who's too close to it. I thought it'd be a fabulous idea. So I'm calling it the Petty Eight format because I gave Scott eight songs. Um, and what we thought we'd do is we'd go through them. Scott's gonna tell me what he thought of each song. And then at the end, I'm gonna get him to pick three that go onto an EP. And I'll put that somewhere. I'll put it in, in on Spotify as a playlist or something. But I'm also going to get him to take one song off my Petty Eight, so that the next time I do this with someone, I'll have to pick a different song. So that's what we're going to do. So I gave you an eight-song set list, and this was this was hell to go through. I mean, I'm sure, like, if you think about doing this with your eye heap, you go, "Oh my god, where do I even start? Do I just do the entire yeah. first album?" Well, do what, I, you know what what's, I mean? what's the the count of his original songs? Do you know what the the total number is? Oh my god! Well. Let me look, because I've got my spreadsheet. He did 16, well, they did 16 albums solo and with the Heartbreakers, two with Mudcrutch, which was the band that he reformed. That was his first band that he went and reformed after 40-some years and just went out and did small venues. Mm -hmm. Then there's the Traveling Wilburys, obviously, but then there's also right. all the other stuff that didn't make albums, sort of all the outtake yeah. stuff, which came out later. So if you just give me one second. And that's the real trick, like all the outtakes and bonus tracks and, yeah. you know... The song, this is the same song as something else, but it was titled something different. So it's not yeah. really a different track, but it is. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. I got 289 studio recorded songs. Okay. Yeah. Which is, it, it's a, because when I, when I thought, you know, I've told this story before, but I was sitting around having a few drinks. Thought, you know, I should do, I should do, a, I should do a podcast because I'd done a podcast with my friend Randy mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, right at the start of the pandemic. And we did 12, 13 episodes. We just couldn't get it off the ground and we sort of, you know, we shelved it. But I, yeah. I enjoy podcasts. I thought, well, I want to do this again. So I know I've got a completely original idea that no one's probably ever thought of before. I'll take an artist and I'll do, I'll talk about one song at a time of their entire catalog, you know, cause that's a very original, very unique idea. And I just, I've been listening to a lot of Tom Petty and going back and listening to his back catalog. Well, that's one, cause I don't know the catalog that well. Mm -hmm. I know there's 16 albums and then I find out, oh my God, there's all these box sets. And then there's this band Mudcrutch. And it's like, okay, well that's going to be, yeah. Well, now we're at six and a half years just to get through the, through the, uh, the canon. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that was the thing with Uriah Heep is that they had a deluxe CD issued of just about every one of their back catalog, 
Yeah. So I was able to get all the bonus tracks and everything in one shot. And then there were a handful that were only released on like compilation albums or like a live album with a bonus track. And so hunting all that down was a little bit of a challenge, but yeah. I think the the count of original songs, I think came to 307 before <laughs> the new album, right. uh, which, which just came out in January, but I've covered everything. I've, I've got the last few uh, episodes are coming out. I think June 8th will be the, the last one. And then I've covered right. their entire catalog. So until they, until they put out another album, that'll be that. All right. Well, let's do some uh, music critique, Scott. Yeah. This is a Tom Petty podcast, right? <laughs> um, so what I did was I, I tried to pick eight songs that would give you a, as broad a look at Tom Petty, sort of, you know, the different looks of the band and also give a little bit of chronology. I did put them in chronological order. Okay. Um, there's, there's 16 albums. So I put, there's eight songs. So there's a lot of albums missing, So I did make specific choices for specific reasons. So as we go through, I'll sort of maybe break down a little bit of that where I think that some of that's relevant, but okay. So the okay. first song I gave you was from the debut album released in 1976 produced by a guy called Denny Cordell, who gave the Heartbreakers. He actually signed Mudcrutch originally, but it wasn't working out. And he said, you know what? Not really interested in Mudcrutch anymore, but Tom Petty, this guy's got something. What about you as a solo artist? And the initial idea was that it would be Tom Petty as a solo artist with a whole bunch of session musicians for different songs. But oh, Tom okay. wanted to be, always wanted to be in a band. He's like, that's not for me. I don't I don't want that. So yeah. ends up, he goes on back and gets most of Mudcrutch back, forms the Heartbreakers, and they go in and they record the first album. So Fooled Again, I Don't Like It is the track that I gave you off the debut album. So what were your thoughts on this one? And I should say too, my experience with Tom Petty is I know a couple of the hits and that's really about it. I think yeah. the first song I heard was probably Refugee. Yeah. And then um, uh, I, I remember Free Falling and um, there's probably a couple others I, I would know if I heard them. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm more familiar actually with uh, with Tweeter and the Monkey Man from the Traveling Wilburys, which I yeah. absolutely love that song. Uh, every time that came on, I'm like, I don't care what's going on. I gotta stop and listen to this song. It's so good. Uh, so fooled again. Um, I so what I did is I just took notes. I didn't read anything in the descriptions of awesome. what you okay. sent me. I wanted to just be as as going in blind and natural reaction as possible. I think that's always the best way to do it. Yeah, um, that's what I was hoping for. The first thing that that struck me is I I thought I was listening to a a, a variation of "You're So Vain" by Carly Simon. Okay, it had a, a feel like that in the riff at the beginning. Um, the first thing, I, the first impression I had when he started singing was he sounds like a bad impression of Mick Jagger. Okay. Uh, so there was okay. just something about his enunciation in the song that I really was not on board with. Okay. And that made it a little bit difficult, but trying to set, when I, when I hear something I don't like, I try and set it aside and just say, okay, well, what else is in the song that I, I may or may not like? I loved the strings. I thought that was such a great compliment and and really important part of the song. I thought yeah. they were a little bit loud in the mix. Uh, and, and again, I don't know if this is the original mix, the remaster or what, but I thought they were just a little bit too loud. They were really nice effect though. Uh, yeah. I think that brought out a lot of emotion. Um, the mix overall was really good in general. Um, I really liked that transition back into the main riff uh, just before the two minute mark. Yeah. I thought that was really smooth and, and very, very well done his voice kind of ruined the song for me on this one because I just, Interesting. I, I just couldn't get into that weird articulation he was using because I've heard him sing. I mean, he can sing very clearly and very yeah. well-defined. So I knew that this was a stylistic choice or maybe just the way he sang early on before somebody came along and said, don't do that anymore. <laughs> well, it's, this is the thing with, and it was another thing that I tried to do was pick different songs because he was a chameleon with his voice because mm -hmm. he would often sing from character, right? You know, a lot of, singers do that so he'd write from a position of a character rather than 
you know, just just a love song or something that he's saying. He would mm-hmm. he would sing from a very specific point of view, and so that's his. And I'd written down like I'd, I'd made a few notes myself. Just I wonder if, if Scott will become this. And it's that choked, that very kind of tight throat delivery, right? Which yeah. he'll use here and there, and he does it on Refugee as well. There's mm-hmm. bits on Refugee where he uses the same type of delivery, but he definitely doesn't do that throughout. It's it's, it's definitely a sort of a a creative decision to do it for that yeah. song. And I think with the tone of the song fooled again. I don't like it. It's a very combative song, right? Like it's a very, mm, yeah, very much sort of thing. It's, you know, so I think that that's, that snarl and that drawl is, was intentional. So, but that's, that's interesting that you, that, that was sort of a, um, a, a black mark straight away. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with the concept. I just, yeah. this particular execution just ruined the song for me, but yeah. I also have, was keeping in mind too, that I have no context. So if, if any of these were say, a uh, part of a trilogy of songs, or if it was a concept album and there was a reason yeah. behind a stylistic choice, I had to just kind of put that out and say, I don't know. I can only listen yeah. to this as it's presented to me and say, here's what I like and here's what I don't like. Yeah. Um, I could see a lot of potential in the song. I think if if I heard the song again with like a regular vocal on it, I would probably like it. Okay, so we skip. So that's the first album. We skip two albums now. So you're yeah. going to get it as the second album. This is where the producer, Danny Cordell, is sort of a bit absent. And that one, it's not, a, again, not a great album. Listen to A Heart Comes Off That Record, which is a brilliant song, very Birds-esque. Um, and then Damn the Torpedoes, which is the big hit. That's ref, uh, Refugee, you know, even The Losers. There's a lot of big hits off that record. So the next song I gave you was Off Hard Promises. It was the fourth album from 1981, again, produced by Jimmy Iovine. And this is where the band now, they've worked with Jimmy Iovine. Now they really understand how to make a record. Now they know how to make a, a cohesive album. And the song I gave you is Something Big. Yes. Uh, the first note I have is that it was a, a really cool beat. I, it, as a drummer, I'm guessing that you probably feel the same way. Oh, yeah. I thought they picked a perfect tempo. I mean, a little bit faster or a little bit slower could have killed the song. Yeah. You know, and that is so that is one of the biggest keys to songwriting is finding that just perfect tempo for what you're trying to do. Yeah. Uh, or series of tempos, because the song can change tempos, I should say. Um, I really like the intro and I love that gentle organ in the verse. I thought yep. that was a really nice touch. I, I thought without that, the song would have been very empty. And it wasn't loud. It wasn't predominant in the mix. Yeah. But it was necessary to really make that a full sounding song. Um, again, I, I didn't really like the vocals on this one. And, and this is why I think I've really never gotten into his music. And I'm not going to okay. say this on every song. Don't worry. Okay. But on this song, he sings like he doesn't even care about the story he's telling. And that's okay. what I had a hard time with. I wasn't buying this was a reality to him. I, I very much felt like he's singing words that he wrote down on a piece of paper. Oh, and wow, okay. it, it felt like an early take, maybe like a, a, okay. a, a run through rehearsal, more so than a final vocal for me. Um, but I'm I'm also used to listening to singers that are very dynamic. I don't I listen to a lot of folk music. So outside of uh, a couple of albums and like uh, Gordon Lightfoot, who okay. really puts a lot of personality into his songs. Tom, to me, is a very straight delivery on a lot of stuff. Okay. And so when you're used to a more uh, emotional delivery, uh, this kind of stuff is a, is a different angle. And there's nothing wrong with it. But it's not what I'm used to. So I, okay. I'm used to more, you know, like a Reba McIntyre emotional kind of vocal, okay. you know. Uh, so I, I I didn't really feel his vocal on this one. Um, what I wrote down uh, wasn't no way to live as a, as a line that stood out. And there was something about the way he said the word live that just... I was like, oh God, no, don't, don't do that. <laughs> it just, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it, I was just like, wow, that does not work. Wow. Okay. So, cause this is what, this is something that Petty does a lot. He bends vowels, 
because mm-hmm. he's got that southern drawl, but he doesn't really. You can hear it when he speaks sometimes, but it's mm-hmm. very subdued. But sometimes he'll really lean, lean into it in a song. Yeah. And this is one where I think he does lean into that Southern because it's no way to live. Like he, he, he bends that eye. Like he, he doesn't sing it straight. Right. So, yeah, it was a weird it was a really okay. weird sounding way to sing it. Like like I can listen to, to Gwen Stefani say live and, and right. do that. That just is like, wow, I can't believe you just did that. And there was just something about the way that this that he did the accent on. It. I'm like, wow, that just yeah. It, it was almost like it was overdubbed on purpose that way <laughs> instead of just an, it didn't feel natural. It wasn't like a, like because okay. the way he was singing everything else, then all of a sudden he's got this heavy accent on one word. It was kind of it just was off putting to me. Uh, I thought the mix was fantastic. Um, one thing I'll say consistently through these songs, for the most part, great studio mixes. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it works um, some great producers. So, and this is Jimmy Iovine, right? So, Jimmy Iovine comes in. I can't remember which album he's just worked on. He's just worked. He's, I think it was Born to Run, or he'd worked on some album, but he wasn't the producer. He was the engineer. Mm-hmm. And so, Damn the Torpedoes was his first really sort of big make or break. Well, you know, I've got to make this album sound really good. And he just put the band through the ringer, making him do 70 takes of Refugee and just yes. killing them in the studio, right? So, but the second album, so that's, you know, but he's a producer. He's like, he knows, like he said, he knows how to get a good sound. He knows how to deal yeah. with dynamics. He knows how to separate frequencies, all those things and things. So, usually, I would say the first two albums don't sound brilliant, but from then on, it's there's a lot of gravy. So, uh, but but the other note I had on this one was I okay. love the guitars and the drums and percussion. Um, I think it's a very well crafted song. Yeah, um, I, I I like this one. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Well, I, I and I gave you this song for a specific reason because it's always okay. to me it's always been very cinematic. It was mm. Tom's like because Tom wrote lots of different types of songs, but this was the first story song that he really wrote from sort of a a bit of a narrative, and it's quiet. You know, it's quite loose. It's ambiguous. You don't really know exactly what's going on, but it gives you just enough to sort of put your own mental framework. And to me, it's always kind of sounded like a small town Nevada, like a bar store or something like that. You can you could get that sense yeah. of just some little dusty, off the highway kind of town and mm-hmm. with this mystique around it, with the you know the the neon the, the motel lights not quite worked, so it's flashing and the old's missing. That's what it's always kind of yeah. That's what it's always conjured in my mind. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I, I think this song would actually play well in a place like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we, we skip another album. We don't okay. do Long After Dark. So Jimmy Iovine does three. There's the Iovine trilogy, as I call it. So they do um, Down the Torpedoes, Hard Promises, which is that was from, and then Long After Dark. So those are the three. Now, he does come back in to do a bit of Southern Accents, but I move on to Southern Accents now because this was an album fraught with um, with issues, which okay. I don't think really come through on this, on this song that I sent you. So the song that I gave you was Dogs on the Run. So 1985... Like I say, it was a it was produced by Jimmy. Well, the album was produced by Jimmy Iovine, Tom Petty, Mike Campbell, Dave Stewart, Robbie Robertson. Like it was just it was just a mess. But this song, I think, mostly was produced by Jimmy Iovine. He came back in to clean up a few things that weren't quite working. Okay, okay. So this is uh, where are we at? Dogs on the run. Dogs on the um, run. Great start. I, I really like the beginning of the song. The uh, the bass guitar sound is phenomenal. I really dug that and the group. Yeah. I, I really like what he's playing and the way it sounds. Um, I, I I do have a note, and this I think this is my last dig at Tom's voice, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> okay, yeah. But I wrote, did he have oral surgery before singing this? <laughs> it it sounded like he had a mouthful of gauze. It, it was really a okay. weird uh, weird <laughs> vocal sound. Um, this it, it it's funny we were just talking about injustice for all because the snare on this sound sounds kind of papery it sounds uh, kind of injustice for all 
okay. on it. Um, really could have worked better if it had more of a snap to it. It still has a snap, but it's like a like somebody's just taking a piece of paper and just like like crinkling it up and smoothing it really quick as opposed to like an actual stick attack on a drum head. Yeah. It's a, it's a really weird sound. I'm not quite sure how they got that, but they did. Um, I think musically though, it's a really nice song. It just like, it, I was so glad that you said it had production issues on this album because I, I do think it came through a little yeah. bit for me, at least. Um, I think a better drum sound could have made the song a little bit stronger but I think the writing and the performance of it is good. But yeah, I do. I do see some production issues there. Yeah. And it was so, Iovine does the first, like I said, he does um, Damn the Torpedoes, Hard Promises, Long After Dark. And Damn the Torpedoes really actually changed the way that drums were recorded. Because Iovine really brought them up in the mix and they were very big. You know, they sounded like they were, they were a huge part of the mix and you could really hear them where that wasn't really happening that much up to that point i mean you know you yeah. got zepp and bonham and that kind of stuff, but that was that was a bit different because they were massively reverb saturated you know and and that so, so it wasn't quite the same thing because this yeah. is more you know people don't like the term but pop rock right because mm -hmm. it's, it's you know it's sort of radio friendly rock whatever so that wasn't really so it really is noticeable on southern accents that that drum sound isn't the same especially in some of this, like the stuff that dave stewart did well it's the guy in the arrhythmics he writes like you know he's writing electronic stuff so of course that you know don't come around here no more it's going to sound mm -hmm. completely different so it yeah. lost its way a little bit, but I, I like too, though, the, I'll throw back at it. I like that you like the song as its bass. One, and again, this has got, got another one of my absolute favorite Tom Petty lines in it. And it says, you know, she said, honey, ain't it funny how a crowd gathers around anyone living life without a net? Oh, I love that. A yeah. Brilliant yeah. line, you know? And so true. Yeah. Especially, especially nowadays. Yeah. You know, but, but I would say now we would had to have to add the caveat of anyone who seems to be living life without a net because everything's <laughs> so fake and <laughs> all yeah. that now. Yeah. But I, I do think it's a good song. I, I do see some, some production issues with it. I, I would be curious if they did some kind of uh, like a snare replacement, right. you know, where they, where they go in and, and digitally replace the snare with a, a stronger sounding snare, but you couldn't have a guy like Bonham playing on a song like this. It would just drown out everything. Yeah. You know, there, there's this kind of music really needs a lighter touch on the drums, it, but the snare still needs to be prominent and have a good snap to it and a good yeah. bottom end, but it doesn't need to be a Kraken John Bonham or Lars yeah. Ulrich snare. It just, it needs to have some presence, but not destroy everything around it. Uh, it's it's an interesting thing because this kind of music is actually harder to mix than people think. Oh yeah. Just because... <laughs> you're so used to putting the drums up in the mix and have them drive the song and drums do not drive this music. Guitars and vocals yeah. drive this music. The drums are supportive. And it's, this is a rare style of music where drums play a supportive instead of a lead role. Yeah. And Stan Lynch. So Stan Lynch was the drummer at this point. So Stan Lynch ends up leaving later on. And then there's the rest of the, I think after this song, there's one. No, I think this might be the last song he drums on. But he leaves, and Stan Lynch was always kind of people mislabel him as a power drummer. With Stan Lynch, he plays he plays a traditional grip, not match grip for starters, which most you know Bonham played match grip when he played most of his Zeppelin stuff. Right. So he's, Bonham's a power drummer. Keith Moon's a power drummer. You know. Yeah. Stan Lynch isn't. He's got. I mean, he can hit the he can hit the drums as hard as anyone, but he's a quite a finesse drummer. And he does a lot more. It's the same thing, you know. When as a drummer, you know. When you sit and you think, well, I can play this. This sounds easy. And then when you actually sit and you think, oh, shit, actually, I can't quite get that. How is he doing that? There's a weird yeah. little swing there that I can't quite find. I don't know how he's doing mm -hmm. that. And it's super frustrating, especially if it's simple or it sounds simple. Yeah. And Stan Lynch is one of those drummers where when I sit down and I can play the notes most of the time, but I'm not quite getting that accent how he's doing it. So, yeah. Okay, so 
Southern Accents, um, again, we skip the next album, Let Me Happen. So Southern Accents took 18 months. Tom actually punched a wall in frustration because he couldn't get the... So what he'd done is they'd been trying to write, trying to get um, the song called Rebels. They'd been trying to get the mix right and they'd been trying to record it. They'd been over and over and over again. And Tom had gone back and listened to his demo, realised that his demo was still better than the track that they had after like four weeks and punches a wall in frustration, pulverises all the bones in his left hand. The doctors say, you might not be able to play guitar again. We don't know. Like, we'll see. We'll see what happens. So he's away and he rehabs and, you know, there's a lot of cocaine around in the recording. His house. So it's a mess. This, this album's a mess and it takes 18 months to get over the line. The next album they do, they decide, well, f that. We're not doing that again. What we're going to do is we're going to, basically, we're going to play a lot of this live off the floor. We're not going to bring an outside producer. There's going to be no groupies. There's going to be nothing. No outside influences. It's just five guys making a record done. So they do that. They get out of that phase. It, you know, there's some highlights in the album. There's some stuff that's not great. Then Tom meets up with George Harrison, Roy Orbison, Jeff Lynne, and Bob Dylan. Well, actually, the Heartbreakers were Dylan's backing band, so we knew Bob Dylan. But then they, they formed the Wilburys, right? So they record the Traveling Wilburys Volume 1. And Tom thinks, you know what? What I need is, I just need Jeff Lynne. And you know what? I think that most artists in the world at some point in their lives have thought, I think I need Jeff Lynne, right? Because he's just so good. <laughs> right? So they need yeah. Jeff Lynne. Let's come in and we'll, we'll we'll get this simpler. We'll make this simpler. So they decide. Tom decides, I'm going to go do this solo album, which the rest of the band doesn't love, right? Because obviously, you know, they're, they're a band. They're a going concern. They're pretty famous. They're doing quite well. They're right. selling out tours and everything else. So Tom goes away and they record Full Moon Fever. So the song that I gave you, was um, the Apartment song from Full Moon Fever. So that was 1989. It's the eighth album that Tom recorded overall, produced by Jeff Lynne and Tom Penny and Mike Campbell. But... I'm a big fan of getting away from your band and doing side projects. I, I often say, if you're in a group, and and you know, for no for people who have never been in a band, it's a family. You know, you're touring together, yep. you're in the studio together. Like you're you spend more time with your bandmates than you do your actual family of course and uh but you're only going to grow together to a certain point you know it's it's like you're in a fish tank you're only going to grow to your proportion of the size of the tank right <laughs> you've got to get in a different tank with other things and learn to grow and, and forage for food differently and you're going to come back with not only fresh energy but you're going to come back with new insight new experiences and new way of doing things i i think they're so vital you know, yeah, and that's 100%. why bands like Deep Purple, who, you know, they they had these different side projects and that's why it works. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, they were worked to death and, and you know, kind of destroyed the band. But those things really do make a difference. So I'm a big fan of that. Uh, as far as the apartment song goes, uh, the first thing that I said was it was nice and upbeat. I, I love the tempo of it. Um, it feels like this. This is the song that I noted that it felt like when country was starting to cross into pop. Yeah really had that kind of air to it. And I and I don't mind that at all. I'm not saying that as a criticism. I'm just yep, as, a, sure. as an observation. Um, I did say that his voice is pretty good on this one. And the the criticism I have is that the song seems like it just was over too fast. <laughs> you know, I, I was enjoying it. And when it was over, I'm like, holy crap, that just, the whole song just went by. It, it was, uh, and that's a sign of a good song. Yeah. I think um, it's kind of like when, I know I use a lot of analogies, but like when I go to a movie theater, <laughs> And I all of a sudden, halfway through the movie or at some point go, whoa, I'm in a movie theater. I can see the edges of the screen and I yeah. realize I'm a physical being inside of a public area. And uh, that's when they've lost me a little bit. Right. And then they have to work. And, and sometimes that's intentional. Filmmakers want to give you a break to, you know, before the big push. But um, 
this song was just over so quick. I never thought about anything else. I, my mind didn't go, okay, as soon as this is done, I got to do this or how many more songs do I have or whatever it was. What am I going to say? Even it was just the song's over. And that is a sign <laughs> of a really good song to me. And it's fun. It's a fun yeah. catch song. And I love the, cause so this was actually recorded for the Southern accents sessions so it was it was two albums back of this one but it was discarded so there is there is a, a version of the song from that era which is mm -hmm. different from this one because it's not got a Jeff Lynne production and it doesn't have that big drum fill in the middle the, the big the Peggy Sue thing right mm -hmm. which when those toms come to you're like oh this is just great because I yeah. love Buddy Holly so mm -hmm. the first time I've heard them I'm like I know what this is I can latch onto this is exactly what I'm here and again it comes off the back of that Wilburys album where that was just about five guys making writing songs just because they enjoy doing it yeah no it happens that it ended up being a very big commercial success but that mm -hmm. definitely wasn't the reason that they did it and i think that this song is one of those throwbacks to you know tom probably jeff Lynn probably said to tom have you got anything else we could use you know we've written you know nine ten songs have you got anything else laying around maybe play this one and jeff Lynn saying oh man totally we got to do this that, that's just going to be fun let's do that one but don't you think that's part of why it becomes successful? Because it's not written geared up to make it on the radio. It's not like the record company says, hey, we need one more hit on this yeah. album. Yeah. It's, I like this riff, let's do something fun with it. And when you write music honestly like that, mm -hmm. I think it has, the audience feels whether it's honest or not. I, I really do believe that. And I think that's why so much of the music in the 70s was so popular, partially because we only had so much music in the 70s, yeah. but also because it was honest music. I mean, when you listen to uh, songs that start and stop, the bands are, they're not 100% together all the time. Like now yeah. all that stuff would be cleaned up. It would be all perfected. Let's take all the humanity out of it and just write technically perfect song or just record technically perfect songs. I think songs that have that natural, we're doing this because we're enjoying it. You feel that. You feel it in the solos. You feel it yeah. in the way the riff is played. You feel it in the vocals. You feel it in the drum beat because it does have a little bit of a not yeah. right on the beat kind of thing. That's why those songs are popular. They're good. They, I mean, the band enjoyed them and people will enjoy them, but I think that's why they become successful. It gives them personality. The, the biggest example, I always go back to this is when you listen to Babo O'Reilly by The Who, Keith Moon comes in about mm -hmm. 10 beats per minute too fast. It's insane how fast he comes in. Mm -hmm. But good stuff. The Apartment song, I, I'm a big fan of that one. When I noted too that the funny thing is that I think that he was talking about the vocal, that's Tom's natural voice, where he's not sort of, he's not playing a character. He's not mm -hmm. affecting, he's not affecting his voice for a specific reason. That's Tom's, if he's just singing in the shower, that's Tom mm -hmm. Petty's singing voice. And it comes across that, it, again, That's I think that's part of the reason why it's so... The word charming springs to mind. There's so much charm in that song because it just sounds yeah. like someone singing a song just for the fun of it. Happens to be on a multi-platinum record, but who the right. cares but, about but that, again, right? so... it's being very natural, being honest, not trying to do something. Just this is what this is what we did. Yeah. Okay, so we skip over the next album, which is Into the Great Wide Open, where Jeff Lynne produces this album, but it's the Heartbreakers now, and and Tom sort of forces Jeff Lynne on the Heartbreakers a little bit, and it causes a little bit of tension and stan lynch ends up leaving during the recording of the next album which is wildflowers which i to my mind is one of the greatest um achievements in popular music or rock and roll history and if i were to recommend you to go and listen to a tom petty album front to back mm -hmm. that's the one definitely to go with the song yeah. i gave you was crawling back to you because i thought that 
dynamically, it's a big change now from everything else I've given to this point. And I wanted to show you that Tom could write a ballad. So mm. over to, oh, so this was, again, 1994, and it's produced okay. by Rick Rubin. So Rick Rubin's a young producer. He's, you know, he's DMCs. He's got, he's, he's, he's done rap albums and all this kind of stuff, but he's, and he's 34 when he produces this record. He's never worked with really with a big rock act before. So it doesn't look like a marriage made in heaven um, from the outset. But when you listen to the production on this record, it's off the chart. So, you know, before I get my notes on this one, yeah. I, I just want to say, because that, that's a really interesting point that you bring up. And I remember, you know, Roger Glover, the bass player for Deep Purple and, and yeah. one of Rainbow's players had uh, has a lot of producing experience. I mean, he worked with Nazareth. He worked with all kinds of people. And he said, it doesn't really matter what you're producing because it's the same job. Whether yeah. you're producing folk music, rock music, metal, it really doesn't matter. It's it's what's going to make a good song. Yeah. I, I say the caveat would be understanding the genre so you know how it should sound and what it needs because otherwise, how can you comment on it or give feedback? Yeah. But it doesn't surprise me. I mean, even if you're like an a R&B producer or hip hop producer, you still get how rock music works or folk music because it's it's structure you know and and what feels good and you can always tell what feels good and what doesn't you know uh crawling back to you i like this one um the first thing is i really like the opening uh, i thought it was very beautifully done um the guitar has just enough distortion to be noticeable but yeah. not anywhere near enough to make it sound like a rock song which i really liked it and that could be a fine line sometimes there's just just the right hint of it you know to keep it in that that element I'm so glad you picked up on that because that was one of the notes. I was like, "How cool does this guitar sound?" Yeah, because Mike Campbell is a great guitarist, a, like, and again, one of those guys who just plays for the song. He has no yeah. ego about it. he doesn't, and he can shred, but he doesn't. He just thinks he, this is what I yeah. need to play here, you know. And he's a very patient player because with, yes. when you're playing this kind of music, you have to know not to rush. You have to be able to keep your tempo. And yeah. as a guitar player, you have a tendency to. I'm only playing four notes here. I need to throw in five or sixteen more, you know. Yeah. And, he really knows how to lay back and play for the yeah. song. He absolutely does. Um, I really like the change in feel when the drums kick in. I thought that was a great unexpected transition. Yeah. Very, very well crafted. Um, I put uh, oh, the, the hi-hat work. I really like the hi-hat work on this song. I'm sure as a drummer, you could probably appreciate the way he's playing it because it really has a unique feel. Steve, it. Steve, it's, so this, so this, the guy they bring. So again, a little bit of background on that because we're drummers and this is we can do yeah. it on drums. So they, they, Stan Lynch decides that he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't like the direction that this album's taken. He's just not, and you know that's fine. Like people creatively, yeah. you've got to be vested in it. So Tom yeah. says, okay, well, if you're not on board, then I kind of need someone who knows who is. So they not audition, but they kind of do. So the story is that Steve Ferroni, who is, is the drummer from the Average White Band, a Scottish funk band from sort of the seventies, and like and a session drummer, like a mad session drummer. He's played with everyone. So he pulls up and starts getting, the, you know, his, his tech is bringing his drums out as Kenny Aronoff is coming out of the building. Oh, geez. And he doesn't know who he's coming in to play with because it's a bit hush-hush, whatever. So he's like, so Kenny's not good enough? Oh, this is going to be, oh, I don't know who's in here. And sits down and, he, and the first thing they play is, um, you don't know how it feels. And it's a really simple beat. But straight away, Tom looks over and he's like, this guy gets this song. This guy's this guy knows where the bones of this song are, and it's the mm -hmm. same thing with this one. And Steve Ferroni is brilliant on the symbols. He said, "Just a there's you know the last song that I gave you. I think we'll talk a little bit about symbols there because it's, it's just he's so deft, it's so it's so good, and then so delicate around the symbols and on the highest in this. Yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm again super glad you picked up on that. So cool. You know, and I'll say as a side note for for any of you non drummers out there who are wondering what the hell we're talking about. 
If you want a great visual reference, I always refer people to listen or to watch a live performance of the Beatles playing Love Me Do. It has the, the swing feel, but you can actually see the way Ringo's playing. You can see his shoulders. Exactly. Yeah. That yeah. Is the, that's the best visual representation because most of the drummers, they'll do it with their wrist and you don't really get to see it so much, but he's moving yeah. in that. He's really <laughs> physically representing what he's playing. So go watch that because it, it's, a, it's a great representation. Um, is there, is there the slightest touch of flange on Tom's voice? I thought I heard just a smidge in there. You know what? I'm not sure. And I, I think it, it might've just been during the, yeah, just during the verse was what my note was. Could yeah. well be because, and I think again, this is, he's, it's everything about this song is restrained, right? Like it's mm -hmm. like said, the, the guitars are held back. The piano part's beautiful, but it's very, you know, cause again, Ben Montage can play like he can do, you know, what are they like stomp piano? He can do boogie woogie. He can rip your face off, but he can also yeah. play those nice, gentle little pieces. The drums are nice and steady, marks and mm -hmm. things. But Tom's also, it's very calm. It's a very peaceful song. Right. And then it's got that beautiful, and again, this is one of the, I'd say this is probably one of the two or three favorite lines in the canon for all Tom Petty fans. Is when he says, I'm so tired of being tired. Sure as not, we'll follow day. And then, so Steve Ferroni, the drummer, now has this tattooed on his arm. Most things I worry about never happen anyway. Again, it's just one of those little throwaway lines that you think you would go, but if you'd written that, you write it down and you, you kind of don't think, oh man, that's a great line. But you come back to think when you're doing your edits, they're well, like, oh, oh no, that's a good line. That's, that's, yeah. I, can, I can write a whole song around that. You know? Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a line that reminds me of called, uh, and it goes, uh, how can I ever miss you if you never go away? <laughs> like that's oh, so who true. is that? That's uh, purple. Yes, of course it is. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. but but that that's so it, and that is so on par with society today. I, I see yeah. all the time people on social media, and, and I really don't look at my feed a whole lot. But when I'm looking for certain things, you know, you see posts and things, and yeah. I see so many people worried about what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen with this. I hope this goes well. Why don't you just like not build up anxiety, and maybe it'll go a lot better if you don't. Let's wait and see. Let's take a wait yeah. and see attitude. Yeah, <laughs> whatever's going to happen is going to happen. There's no point worrying about it. You know. I mean, if you're on murder trial or something, I could kind of see maybe having a little anxiety. But yeah. for most things in life, this, this line is absolutely apropos. Uh, let's see, what else did I say? Uh, so the vocals are slightly loud for me in this mix. I think they could okay. have backed them off a little bit and it would have blended a little bit better. Uh, the backing vocals, though, are are superb. I yeah. really enjoyed the blend of the backing vocals. Um, I really like the chorus and the piano. I think that's some great, great performance there. Uh, I really feel it. You know, I really feel that playing. Um, and as someone who plays a keyboard, uh, I get it. You know, yeah. um, I know what it's like to have that feeling come through my fingers while I'm playing something that feels good to play. Yeah. Um, to the point where I'll play it too many times. Um, the guitar solo is pretty good, but but I thought it was a little buried in the mix. I yeah. thought, boy, that should be featured a little bit more. Okay. You know, again, not a whole lot. But just just raise it up a little bit because yeah. I think there's some great playing in there that doesn't really get featured. And okay. to me, and the way I mix as an audio engineer is that the, your solo replaces your vocal. Mm -hmm. So whatever volume your vocal is at, that's where your solo should be because it's covering, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, unless you have like screechy guitars or something like that, then you have to back some of that off. But in general, you're basically compensating for the vocal that isn't there. Yeah. Um, so I thought a little bit more in the mix, especially because we have an overloud vocal, it makes the guitar solo even quieter. Okay. You know, 
um what else do i have here uh after the solo the song gets soft um that's where the vocals like really stand out and i was just doing a review of uh of a classical album of 80s remakes okay and we have vocalists singing in the 80s style with synthesizers and electronic drums but with an orchestra backing them up it's a really interesting thing oh. But the problem is because the orchestra, especially the strings and the brass, they get so loud that the vocals are loud when the song is quiet. When the orchestra kicks in, they're right. Then when the brass kicks in, it's like too quiet. Okay. And then they drop out and the vocals are too loud. It is yeah, so hard to mix that because you're not dealing with like a rock band or something that has a constant amount of sound. There's always a drum beat. There's always an organ. There's always a bass guitar. It's yeah. really easy to find the sweet spot for everything. This music is so up and down. And I kind of felt like that with this song too, because it has hills and valleys more than the other songs I've heard. Yeah. It's really hard to blend that in without writing the vocal fader, which also just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless yeah, he's yeah. singing quieter, it, it doesn't work for the song. It sounds like you're writing the fader. So that that's a little bit difficult for the engineer. Overall, I thought it was pretty good, but that's the comparison I could make. Um, I think the song could have been about a minute less. Okay. I, I think it was a lot of just too much okay. of, of a good thing. Uh, I really did like the flute at the end though. I don't, I didn't hear flute throughout the song. I just heard it at the end. I'm like, Oh, I, where did that come from? That was kind of nice stuff. <laughs> but I feel like there's a little bit of that. in some of the other songs, like all of a sudden there's a little bit of harmonica that just kind of says, Hey, I'm in the room too. And now I'm leaving. Like it's, it's kind of weird. I, it's not like there's a harmonica in this song. It's like, I know there's mean, a harmonica yeah. in this part. Well, and I think that the flute actually is, I think that's a Mellotron. Oh, I it think could it's be. Ben Mont playing a Mellotron. I think I'd have yeah. to go back and check that, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. I, I don't, yeah. I don't think there's a flute on that. Well, it's funny because, um, talking about film scoring, Michael Kamen did. So there are a few songs on this with full sort of strings on Michael mm -hmm. Kamen comes in and does that. Right. So, Oh yeah. Super, super cool. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was going to ask you about the length too, because for me, it works just because the intro is quite long. Mm -hmm. The intros before Tom starts singing, they're it's probably, it's gotta be about 45 seconds to a minute. Yeah, I think but so. Like I said, so, so and, and it is quite a, uh, it's not purposeful. It's not quite the right word, but it's a very deliberate, pacing to the song mm -hmm. so i think it to me it requires a little bit more time so it's just like a wine right you gotta you gotta take the, the the cork out and let it sit for a minute and let it breathe then we're right. gonna pour it then we're gonna smell it then we're gonna taste it so that's how it's always been to me but again this is i'm, I'm so happy I, I think this format is gonna work so well because this is exactly what i hope would happen we i really hope that we wouldn't go yeah i think that too yeah i think that too. I, thought, <laughs> right, I was yeah. like great someone's got a different opinion because and again especially because you are a producer and you are a sound engineer for the people like having that ear where you would mix it differently because that's mm -hmm. again that's subjective as well right that's that's you know we were talking about from deep purple the bass player uh roger glover roger glover is going to mix that differently to rick rubin who's going to yeah. mix it differently to jimmy iovine the same song you're going to get 12 different mixes from 12 different producers right and after, cool you thing, fire, right? and after you fire bob rock then you go to after yeah you fire. uh but you know it, it's interesting <laughs> uh i i think it was on the first song or one of the first songs that i reviewed from uriah heap from their first album I think it was during like near the end of the solo or something. I, I can't remember now, but there was like a little clink I heard in there. And I'm like, that doesn't fit the song. What the hell is that? <laughs> so I reached out to, so I, I had mentioned it in the episode that I was hearing some weird sound. It sounded like a coffee cup or something. And, uh, and I, I wrote to Mick, I'm like, Hey, what is this? Do you know? And he's like, 
apparently they were getting ready to sing the backup vocals and the drummer or somebody in the band was, was, uh, was drinking coffee and they just set it down and you heard the clink of that <laughs> in the actual recording. They, they like went too fast and, you know, cause normally you would just set it down very gently and quietly yeah. so that it wouldn't pick up on the mic, but it was just, he, he needed to move it quick and he just set it down and it got on the mic and I'm like, wow. Yes. But, but as an engineer, I mean, that's my job is to hear every little yeah. nuance, you know? Um, but, but I think it was more towards the end of it. I felt like the last okay. minute or so I'm like, this has kind of gone on long enough. Like, I think you're not doing anything new or interesting with the song. Okay. I got that. And yep. That's kind of where I felt like you're, you're doing this big build. I expected the whole song to continue on to a build, but like once it flatlined, I'm like, okay. And then it just stayed there. I'm like, yeah, okay. that's a little too long for me, but I did like the flute at the end. I thought that was a, whether it was a Mellotron or I, I thought yeah. it was a nice touch that sound. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so we skip now to well, we skip three albums now. Okay, so uh, Rick Rubin just again does three albums. Tom likes threes. He did three albums with the IOV. And he did three albums with Jeff Lynne. Three albums with Rick Rubin. Um, so we're going to skip. She's the one again. It's a soundtrack. There's some great songs on there. Um, Echo, which is a really beautiful record, but it was it's like you know when an artist writes a song like this was basically Tom was having real issues in his marriage in this during this period. And his kids say when they heard this record, they they thought, oh, mom and dad are going to break up because they could they knew there's enough in it that you think, oh, yeah, this is the sign that things are not right. Echo was really sort of, there was no subtlety about it. It was like, my heart is broken. I'm going to write all these songs about why that is, what I'm going to do to repair it, where I'm at right now, and then blah, blah, blah. The, last, the next album after that is The Last DJ, which is a phenomenal album. This is a major release criticizing, I mean, slamming the, the music industry taking it apart and saying that this is bullshit. You know, you're all you want is some little girl with a short skirt to sexualize and play guitar on stage. And, you know, and the, the line is, um, she gets to be famous. I get to be rich. So it's a mm -hmm. very cynical album after that. Then he goes back and he wants to work with Jeff Lynne again. And he writes another solo album, highway companion released in 2006. Um, it's the last solo album that he does. And the song that I gave you off this album was saving grace. Okay. So this is on the solo album. Yeah. This is another okay. solo album. Yeah. Okay. Um, I really like the pulse of the song that's created by the guitar and bass. I thought that was really different from the stuff that I'd heard from him before. Yeah. Uh, was not expecting that at all. I mean, this feels almost a little bit more like something that you would get in a movie when they're trying to build a little bit of tension. Yeah. You know, I could I could definitely see this song being licensed for a movie, whether it was the, an instrumental version or not. For sure. Um, I don't normally like claps, but I thought they fit in very well to that yeah. pulse. I thought that was a nice addition uh, because they're also, they're, they're put in the mix in a, in a space where they're not sticking out. They're not like, Oh my God, that's claps. I'm constantly hearing claps, you know, right. they're, they're buried enough for me to notice them, but not, you know, hear too much of them. Uh, so kudos to the engineer on that. Um, the verse reminded me a lot of green onions. If you know that song, um, <laughs> yes, of course. definitely felt that. And I, I, I was kind of like, okay, well maybe, you know, again, no context. So maybe this was a little bit of an homage to it or, or something. I wasn't sure, but I love the shuffle feel of this yep. piece. It has such a great groove to it. That was the thing I think that caught me more than anything else was just the feel. And of course, you know, you and I are drummers, so we're going to yeah, pick up on that more. Uh, but I thought that was great. The, whoever made that choice absolutely made this song what it is. Um, I really like the organ. Again, not overpowering anything present. 
but not dominating, which I thought was very important. There was some really nice performances in there, though. Um, I really there was a change around two minutes um, and then uh, some steel guitar accents that I really liked uh, both yeah. of those things very well. And my last note is uh, then builds with the piano in the next verse. I really like that. So after that two minute change in the, yeah. in the steel guitar accents, there was that build with the piano. And I really dug that. I thought that was so this song was masterfully crafted is what I would say. Beautiful. And it's because it is that it's, it's the turnaround. It's where the song yeah. breaks and then we come back in. Right. And it's mm-hmm. so and it, the, the Green Onions thing is because I wrote mine. It was Green Onions inspired Southern Rock riff and LaGrange. There's the, it's oh. got that ZZ Top swing to it mm-hmm. as well. Right. You've got that. The shuffle yeah. is it's all that's Frank Beard. Now, mm-hmm. the cool thing about this album is, we you know, so Full Moon Fever is a solo album. But I think Jim Keltner plays on one song, George Harrison and Bob Dylan provide back and Like it's a big family atmosphere, Mike Campbell yeah. and Ben Montench. So there's a lot of heartbreakers on it. And you know, it's 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 a lot of people in it. Right. Wildflowers really is a heartbreakers record musically because that's the people who played on the record with a few Ringo plays drums on a song, and there's a couple of other people pop in. This one is three people. It's Tom Petty, Mike Campbell, Jeff Lynn. That's it. Tom Petty mm-hmm. writes all the songs. It's the only album he released where there were no co-writes. He did mm-hmm. he wrote he wrote all the songs and he plays drums. So Tom Petty's playing the drums on this one, which interesting. I, I, that I was like, that blew my mind. Except first of all, I didn't know. Well, Tom Petty started as a bass player. Well, he was the bass player in Mudcrutch. So he mm-hmm. plays bass. We all know he plays bass, but I didn't know he could drum. And there's yeah. nothing super technical on it, but it's like you said, to get that swing and that feel and that specific timing and that cadence of it, it's pretty cool. Well, that it takes a certain syncopation to be able to do that. And uh I'm yeah. I'm really impressed. I had absolutely no idea that he ever got behind a kit, let alone could pull off something like that. Yeah. I mean, and and didn't I say that whoever did the drums, yeah. you know. <laughs> Uh, I meant to tell you earlier, uh, you were talking about uh, the grip. You know who else played with a traditional grip was Cozy Powell. Oh, yeah, but Cozy's like, again, you're into Ginger Baker love God level of drummers now, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> so. yeah. There is, a, there is a great video. I don't know if I sent it to you, but uh, a great video of him teaching a kid how to play the opening to Stargazer. No. Oh, yeah. I'll, oh, I'll find it. Yeah. It's okay, absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah. But no, this this was a really good song. I have to say, I, I was very impressed with it. I think it had a great feel. There's really nothing I would change or say, yeah, this could have been done better. I mean, yeah. the mix is great. The The feeling you get. And maybe, you know what, sometimes maybe consolidating the number of people that play on a song can really be beneficial because you yeah. don't have too many people adding their own unique flavors. You have three flavors that are adding different parts, yeah. but with that same feel in mind, if that it's makes funny. sense. Absolutely. And I don't know how much you know about Jeff Lynn because Jeff Lynn's not, not a, much. yeah. And Jeff Lynn, I mean, you know, ELO phenomenal band. Like he's done, he's worked with almost everyone on the bloody planet, but Jeff mm-hmm. Lynn's thing is I don't want a big, massive, lavish studio I yeah. just want a nice small. So most of Full Moon Fever, which was again a huge free fall and a huge hit, most of that was recorded in Mike Campbell's bedroom, and they had wow. the mixing board in the kitchen, and it was all it was, it was just in his house. And so, and this was another one where they sort of get a small space, exactly that. Let's get the three of us around the table. Let's get our acoustic guitars that we'll figure out the songs. Tom shows what it is, shows the chord changes. We'll figure everything out, and then we'll start thinking about okay, well, what needs harmonica? What needs bass? What needs you know, blah blah blah. And so, the, so it's it's got that that very organic, natural feel to it. But, but see, got, this kind of, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. 
this kind of music doesn't require a big studio. In fact, I think it would be damaging, you yeah. know? Okay. So if you take the traveling Wilburys, I could see that you're talking bigger production, timpani is brought in, you've got, you know, a much larger sound for this kind of music. Honestly, a small 16 track studio, maybe 32 track studio. If yeah. you're doing overdubs or whatever, you don't need much. You need natural. That's what makes this music work is natural sound. And if you're in a huge room playing a, a little acoustic guitar and a vocal, that doesn't make sense. Well, and I think the other thing that that does too is, and we're going to talk about this lots on the next song, actually, which obviously okay. you, you won't have context for that. But when you record in a small space with not all the bells and whistles, it forces, first of all, it forces economy. You've mm -hmm. got to be you got to be a little bit more selective about what you are going to include and what you're not. It right. also means that you've got to go in knowing the bloody parts. You got to be able to play the damn thing because you don't have, you know, you don't have like Pro Tools. You don't have well, which they didn't have back then. Well, when did Pro Tools come in or Cakewalk? Um, I I started on Cakewalk in '98, I think, okay, and that yeah. was version 4.2. So, so it had been about mid for a couple years, right? Yeah, yeah, I would say, yeah. That is actually now a good segue into the next song, though, because oh. that is not what happens on this one. So we are are we skipping it? We're not skipping an album this time. I'm going straight into Mojo from 2010 this is the penultimate album that the heartbreakers record um with a guy named ryan ulyadi um as the sort of the outside producer tom petty and mike campbell were co-producers well petty was co-producer on everything from the second album mike is co-producer on everything from the fourth or fifth um but this one's ryan ulyadi and i'll give you a little bit of background on this after we talk okay. about it. so give me your thoughts ah. on jefferson jericho blues it's definitely an intriguing title I had no idea. Like I, I couldn't even have a preconceived notion of what this song would be based on that title. Uh, Cause I, you know, a lot of people put blues in the title and it's not a blues. Yeah. So I wasn't even going to assume that. Well, Dylan, uh, but I did, Dylan, I did, Dylan wrote oh. a million blues songs that weren't blues yeah. songs. So. Exactly. Uh, but I did think the title was intriguing. Um, I, I like, I, I do like a good shuffle. You know, I, I'm a big fan of those. I think even on rock albums, it's always good to have a shuffle on yeah. a rock album. Uh, you're right. He was huge into shuffles. In fact, uh, the double shuffle was something that they do quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, very tricky to play. I did a horrible video on how to do it. And then their drummer, like three days later, posted a video on how to do it a thousand times better than I could. <laughs> uh, but he does it for a living. I don't. So that's yeah. fair. Uh, but yeah, I like I like the shuffle. Um, I really like the riff, but I did feel it was a little repetitive. Okay. I um, yeah. kind of wanted a little more change. I did like the change around one minute and 45 seconds. And uh, the guitar solo I thought was great. I thought yeah. the piano playing was great. As a drummer, this would be a fun song to play, I think, as a, as a musician. I could get into this. And totally. I could, I could take this song into like a 10-minute jam as a drummer and be perfectly happy. You know, but but listening to it, I, I would have liked a little bit more change in it just because I, I thought it was a little repetitive, but I thought it was a it was a good song. It was one I definitely would put on my yeah, I like this list. And it's funny that you say that because so I'll get I'll, now I'll give you the some of the background on this. Okay. So Mojo, again, they Tom decides to do things a little bit differently. So at this point, the Heartbreakers, again, they're they're a big it's a business now as much as anything, right? So, mm -hmm. of course, when you're a touring band and you've got a million guitars and amps and all kinds of shit, you need a place to put it. Um, they've got this place called The Clubhouse in LA. I think it's in LA or just on the suburbs or whatever. <laughs> and so this is where all the stuff is. And that's the band room, essentially, right? This is where they go to rehearse before tours. It's where they go hang out. They want to go jam ideas and things. So they decide that what we're going to do is we're going to go to The Clubhouse and that's where we're going to record this next album. Hmm. We're going to bring Ryan Oliari in, who I think at that point maybe had worked on... 
one of the compilation albums, 1996 playback, I think maybe. He's now he's been brought into the Petty family. Mm-hmm. So the next thing they think is, okay, well, what else can we do differently? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to record this basically live. Mm-hmm. Basically, this is going to be live off the floor, and we'll get as much separation sound as we can. I mean, obviously, as a studio guy, you know this. You can oh, put yeah. baffles up and things and whatnot. But it, essentially, it's, it, so this entire album, there's probably about six or seven overdubs on it total. The rest of it is just six guys in a room. Now, this is the other thing. They've gone from five guys now to six. So during Echo, I think they bring in Scott Thurston as a touring musician. So Scott Thurston, of course, was one of the Stooges. He was Iggy Pop's lead rhythm guitar, lead guitarist, I think, back in the you know late 70s, early 80s. So Scott Thurston comes in. Now, this guy's, again, this guy's a, a demon. He can play rhythm guitar, he can play lead guitar, he can play keyboard, he can play a mean harmonica. And that harmonica that you're hearing, that's Scott Thurston. Okay. So this is basically Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers going back in and doing a blues album, more or less. There's a few mm-hmm. not quite bluesy songs on there, but it's more a blues album and it's all live off the floor. So you get that, re- this is where I think that fun thing really comes across is, yeah, this is, the drummer's like, Steve Ferroni's just having a whale of a time here because this is just fun to play. Right. Super fun. Yeah. Now, is this now this was where they were storing their gear and rehearsing, but was it a recording? Was it set up as a recording studio or did they bring in a mobile? Nope. They brought in just enough equipment to get, you know, and they would have put some baffles in the corners. Yeah. They would would have done some treatment to the room for sure. Right. Because no, it wasn't recording. Yeah. The sound on this is really good. It feels really natural. And that explains why, because it wasn't a padded studio that when you walk into a studio, when you're in the recording rooms, you feel the air is not really moving. It's a very dense, <laughs> very weird, surreal until you get used to it. Yeah. Um, that's why a lot of bands, like they'll go in and hang out in the recording room before they start playing. They'll kind of adjust and acclimate to the room a little bit. Yeah. Uh, very important. But yeah, I do like the sound on it. I think they they captured something very natural. But if it was all done live, that makes a lot of sense to me because it really felt like they were playing together. Yeah. Not like, okay, we're going to record the drummer and everybody else is going to do a scratch track. Then we're going to go in and do the bass. And then we're going to come back and do the guitars. I really feel it was more recorded together as a, as a live unit. So that really, that, that tracks for me. Awesome. And it's funny because I'd written down in my little sort of notes to talk to you about backtracks Aerosmith. Mm Mm-hmm. You've done a couple of songs, I think, now, maybe one or two from Honking on Bobo. Mm-hmm. This is how they should have recorded Honking on Bobo. I think mm-hmm. had they done it this way and it wasn't with the big studio production and it feels glossy and big, if they'd gone back to just really recording a band playing together, a lot of those songs would have popped a lot better. And that's why I, one of the reasons I really love this album is because throughout, it just feels like a bunch of really talented musicians who were very, very well rehearsed playing a bunch of songs. I'll go you one better and say, I think all their stuff should have been recorded that way. <laughs> they, you know, they had songs that were kind of heavier. I mean, you look at a song like Ragdoll or Love in an yep. Elevator or something like that. They're they're good rock tunes, but most of their music is sitting on a porch, hanging out, drinking beers, having a good time, jamming, yeah. you know. And I really think that that a band like that could easily be overproduced and just you want to take the natural sound that they have and capture it. Yeah. And like doing this with a song like this and a band that does this kind of music, this just makes so much more sense not to be at Oceanway Studios or let's go to Abbey Road. You yeah. don't need that. You just yeah. need something that can capture the warmth and the magic of what you've got. And um, it's just too easy, especially when you've got a budget to overproduce the kind of stuff that it just doesn't work. 
Well, I'm sure you'd agree that, you know, I've, I've talked to my my friend Randy, who's also a producer and a, an engineer and everything. I always say, you know, so people say, well, what's the most important thing? Is it the quality of the microphones? Is it the, like, you know, making sure that the position of the the room, the bathroom, and, and what is it? Is it the engineer? Is it, and it says, no, it's the players. If the yeah. guys come in being able to play the song, mm-hmm. everything else is, not, it's relatively easy. If you can't play, I got a lot of work to do. Yeah, you know, yeah. So. and if you do, if you don't know what you're playing too, I mean, the yes. the, the education and the the preparedness. Yeah. I mean, a lot of songs are written in the studio and then just recorded right after that. Like, okay, we wrote it. Now let's just get a take of it. The Beatles used to do that all the time. Of course, yeah. Um, but yeah, really, if you're if you're an engineer, if you're working in a recording studio that's going to have a band like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers pay you to do this, if you don't know how to place a mic. <laughs> you're you're never working on another album like they're, they're not hiring inexperienced people so yeah you have to have those components but those are kind of a given to be yeah. honest you yeah. know it's, it's it's just like saying you're not doing a sci-fi movie on, that's going direct to dvd without some <laughs> computer generated effects like there are certain things that you just know are going to happen so i would say the engineer is a very important component more on the mixing side than the recording because getting a good recording to me is a given that's not even anything that should be an issue unless you're recording something weird like they bring in some weird thing like we need this vacuum cleaner recorded for the intro of a song then i could see it a little trial and error but to record a band like the heart that should not even be an element where the engineer becomes important is the mixing yeah and maybe even uh you're a little off key or you're a little out of tune like being aware of what's going on um, but apart from that, no, the, the band's performance and getting a good sound isn't isn't an issue anymore. Okay, so on to the last song, then we'll move in yeah. one album. So this is the last album that Heartbreakers release in 2014. Mm-hmm. Again, it's produced by Ryan Oliadi. Um, and the song I gave you, which is one of my favorite songs in the Heartbreakers catalog, is Fault Lines. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with this one, uh, the first thing right off the bat that stood out to me, again, great beat and a great bass line. Yeah. absolutely killer this rhythm section and and i have to say this as an overall general thing because i know we're talking about different musicians from song to song but he's really good at getting a good rhythm section yeah yeah you know yeah. very very tight very it feels like they read each other well almost like they're brothers yeah. who are playing together in a band you know um they they just feel that that close to me uh not close to me but they feel that close in my opinion yeah. <laughs> um, this this song, I really like the sound of this because it sounded like it was from the 60s. It had a really unique uh, audio quality to it, which I really dug because I knew it was a more modern song. Yep. Um, but it had that production value where it just felt uh, really old school, real to real, old amps, old microphones, yeah. you know, a little bit grainy, that kind of thing. Uh, I love that old guitar distortion sound. Yeah. It was yeah. perfect. Infection and buzzsaw and it's got that buzzsaw attack to it yeah yes exactly um what i put I, I thought there was a little bit of distortion on tom's voice just the slightest amount yep. but it also could have been in that style of that recording because if, if, if they were going for that 60s sound and they wanted it to be a little rougher and a little bit more grainy they might have added it for that reason, but I definitely detected a little bit of that in there. Right. Um, it also could have been that they were purposely clipping his voice so that it would uh, shelf and cut out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, either whatever technique they use, they they definitely did something that was very obvious, because at this point, I don't think they would have accepted a shitty take 
No, 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 no. We just said we got to do this again. So this has to be calculated. Yeah, I know. I should just so I do throw in little nerdy pin, nerdy things into the podcast every now and again. Mm-hmm. Explain to the listeners what clipping is, because not no. everyone will know what that term means. <laughs> so clipping is so if you've ever watched a, a meter on anything, it could be your your home stereo, your cassette player, whatever it is, and you see it go into the red, and then it just kind of stays red for a second, and it's really bright, <laughs> and it's yelling and screaming at you to turn the volume down. That's kind of what clipping is. It basically it, it's going to cut off the sound and distort it at some point. You're not getting a nice, warm, clean sound anymore because you've pushed the level beyond what the input can handle yeah. and record cleanly, and it's going to give you some weird, uh, some weird sound. Was that a good description? Do you think? Perfect. Absolutely. Okay. Perfect. Good. Yeah, I usually use baking references. I don't know why I didn't on this one. Um, I really, there's a chord that plays into the verse that is is kind of a lower chord. I don't know what the chord is or how they're how they're making this happen, but there is just such a mood that it gives the song that it doesn't have anywhere else in the song. It's just when they strike this one chord, and I really dug that. Yeah, I thought this is such a brilliant idea and it gives the song such a different feel in this spot only. And I really love that. I thought that was cool. Um, again, I kind of feel that the song is a little bit repetitive, but it's also very catchy. Yeah. So it's kind of like you don't mind that it's repetitive. It's it's like the album Slided In by Whitesnake where almost every song just repeats the chorus into the fade. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I know. I know, <laughs> but it's so catchy that you're like, all right, I'm just going to take this ride because it's it's yeah, enjoyable yeah. to listen. It's not to yeah. the point of annoyance, you know, uh, but the song has a really good feel to it. Um, I really did like this one. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it, so as a drummer, one of the things that I love about this song is, and I don't know if you picked up on it, if, if, if you didn't go back and listen to it, mm-hmm. Baroni's playing on the, on the ride bell throughout most of it. He's playing this weird little bossa nova mm-hmm. beat that again, it's one of those things that I can play it, but I cannot play it. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I just right, can't yeah. get the feel of it. It's like, I because I don't play that kind of, I don't play those poly, those South American polyrhythms. I don't do all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So when you get that bit of Latin flair into this, into this, because the rest of it's fairly straight, mm-hmm. right? It's not four on the floor, but it's it's, a, it's not quite a backbeat, but it's not far off. But to yeah. throw that in, it gives it this weird dynamic that I just absolutely adore. And there's nothing in this song that I, you know, he sings on the high wire above the wildfire and old acrobats on faulty cable, still he's able not to fall flat. So you've got oh, that, like that one, one, two, one, one, two rhyme scheme. And it's just mm-hmm. a, it's so punchy. And again, it's still yeah. that thing about Petty always had this way of sort of throwing at least one line into every song that you think, I wish I'd written that. <laughs> <laughs> yep i i get you on that you know i i would say try are you a, a, a traditional or a match grip guy match yeah okay so i would say try playing well no because if you're mostly playing rock and roll that's fine because yeah. you you're really limited when you play traditional grip in a lot of ways um but i would say for when you're trying if you're trying to play some bossa nova stuff try playing it with the traditional grip and use your your left hand. Okay. If you're right-handed, use your left hand to do those accents and see if that feels a little bit better. Tilt your hand a little bit more. Okay. And play more with the side than with a downstrike and see how that feels. Okay. It, it may or may not work for you. Uh, that works for me a lot of times because I find cool, if I man. if I'm attacking everything from a downward stroke, yeah, it's harder to to get some of that syncopation. 
Okay, let's wrap things up um, yeah. on the petty side. So uh, the format that I came up with is I'm going to ask you to put together an EP. So your three, basically your three favorite songs from the ones I gave you. And then yeah. which one are we going to take off the petty eight? And I'm, I have to replace for the next guest. So what's yeah, your EP? It's... Which of the three songs you'd put on your EP? Okay, so the first, and I'm going to pick, just pick these in order. Sure. The, the way I do these, like I don't memorize the Aerosmith songs. There's just too many of them. And I like from week <laughs> yeah. to week, I'm like, I remember. So I color code everything on my okay. spreadsheet. That's how, what works for me. So uh, I, the first one I'm going to pick is the apartment song. Okay. I think that belongs on the EP. The second one I'm going to pick is Saving Grace. And the third one is Fault Lines. Perfect. I almost picked Jefferson Jericho Blues. I think just just like I said, because that would just be so much fun to play. It's such a fun song. But I, but I think Fault Lines would if if I was saying three songs out of these to represent, I would say Fault Lines would be the better song. Right on, man. Overall. Good selections. Thank you. Um, the song I would drop would be the first one, Fooled Again. Okay. And and that really comes down to I don't think that's that's really a way I would suggest people get into him because of the vocal. Because, again, he's playing that character. Yeah. Um, I think it's a very young song. I just see I see potential in the song, but I don't see the song. Yeah, I to I know I totally get what you mean. I hundred percent. I it is a young song. Yeah, and it's 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 recorded by a band that doesn't really have a ton of studio craft yet. Mm -hmm. Tom and Mike and Ben Mont have recorded a couple of singles from Mud Crutch way back in the day, but Ron Blair and Stan Lynch and and they're coming in pretty cold, and they haven't really worked with the band yet. So it, yeah, yeah, absolutely, I totally get it. I, I did have a couple of um of of overall notes sure. on the songs if you'd like to hear them. Absolutely. So one thing, and, and again, I'm only judging by these eight songs and, and a couple yeah. of the the hits that I know. Uh Won't Back Down was another one that that I know. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's been licensed for some movies. Um, seems like a, a good like an action adventure type. About, no? about, a, about a million. About, yeah, about a million. Okay, there yeah. you go. <laughs> it's it's probably up there with like uh bad to the bone. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of starts and stops that I think that kind of gets a little bit old, but again, I'm, I'm only looking at this collection. So yeah. over the course that that might mean absolutely nothing. Um, the, the, I, I don't really like him as a vocalist. I like him as a, as a lyricist. I think he's okay. got some great lyricists, but this is why I've never really dug into his music is because, okay. So his eyelids, if you look at his eyelids, they're a little heavy, right? He always okay. looks like he's about to fall asleep. That's how he sounds to me as, as a vocalist. <laughs> And I don't mean that in, in, I know that sounds mean, and I don't mean that in a mean way, yeah. but I'm used to listening to more dynamic singers. So this sure. is not, and again, it's not really my genre, but I do find a lot of good stuff in these songs as, as I've, as you've heard through my comments. Yeah. Um, I, I think he gets a great mix. Like most of the stuff that we've talked about, I think the mix is great other than like one or two little adjustments I would make here and there. But the vocals are, and ironically, it's the vocals that seem to be off the most. They're either a little too loud or a little too soft. Okay. And that's funny because it's really a vocalist with a backing band. You know, it's not the Heartbreakers. I gotcha. I gotcha. It's um, Petty and the Heartbreakers. Um, some of the songs, like I said, get, get a little bit repetitive. Um, and, and I don't mind repetition if there's variation to it. Like if you're going to sing or every verse is going to sound the same, you got to put in a little filler here and there, just a little, a little something to make yeah. it different from time to time. Um, and then, uh, yeah, sometimes, I mean, you could do it with different words or a different style, but he seems very linear a lot of times in the way he sings, like, this is how the verse goes. Not, this is how this verse goes. 
this is how the verses go. And it's, yep, and gotcha. it, he finds that cadence that he, he likes to repeat. So I don't know if he writes the lyrics to the cadence or if that's just how it comes out naturally, but I did pick up on that a little bit. Um, and again, o- only judging on these eight songs and a couple of other ones that I know that yep. I didn't listen to directly. So n- nothing mean spirited at all. Um, but I, I do, there's a reason he was as successful as he was and why, why his legacy will go on for generations to come. Yeah. That's awesome, man. No, that, you know, I, I really have nothing. I've just not, well, I'm going to say a rebuttal. That's because that sounds a bit combative. No, that that's what you take away from a, an artist is, as we said earlier on, that's very personal. Mm-hmm. That's down to you. And as you know, I always tell people, like, I cannot listen to Pearl Jam. I can't listen to Neil Young and I can't listen to The Smiths, even though I know all three of those bands slash artists are brilliant songwriters, brilliant bands, but the vocalist voice, it's not that it's a bad voice. It just doesn't resonate with me. So if the yeah. voice doesn't resonate with you, it's tough to get past that. He's not my singer. Yeah, But exactly. I would say I found some really good stuff in here that I was I was very impressed with and enjoyed. So I appreciate you exposing me to this stuff. And I always really go into this, anything that I'm unfamiliar with, I go into it with the optimism of let's see what it is. Yeah. Never, I'm probably not going to like this or I already know I don't like this genre. I already know I don't like, like I really just, let's just see what it is. And go from there. I'm either going to enjoy it or not, or I'll find good things or or not, you know? So yeah, I, there's definitely some good stuff in all of these songs, even the one I really didn't like. Well, and that's, <laughs> that is the main reason that I wanted you to be my guinea pig for this format, because I knew that you would come in with an open mind and I've listened to your voice enough on the shows that you do, that I knew that I would get an articulate, intelligent, informed opinion with some reasoning behind it, not just that sucks, right? So I thank you very, <laughs> very much for this. Let the people know. Thank you where they can find you, what you're doing, what they should look for, all the things. I mean, th- this is another half an hour now to tell people what you do. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's it's always but, a ch- I, I should go ahead. <laughs> write some sort of consolidated version. Uh, okay. So uh, I'm an author. You can find all of my books on my Amazon author page. They were kind enough to offer me one. I think I was working on my third book at the time. And they're like, here's an author page. I'm like, oh, okay, great. Uh, I've got nine books there now. Uh, the hub for everything is my website, scotthaskin.com. There are links to uh, you know, my Amazon page. All my albums are there. I've got 31 albums out. Uh, all the podcasts can be streamed oh, on my website. There are uh, between Uriah Heap and the Haskin Cast podcast, I'm getting close to 730, I think, episodes. So uh, quite a bit. And then links to, uh, you know, films I've worked on and all. It's it's all on the website, scotthaskin.com. And then uh, my band, Era Patches, we're, we're based out of Montreal. I've actually never met any of them. I'm the, <laughs> the recording drummer. And I've done one album with them. And we're, I think, talking about doing another one. Uh, great progressive band. Uh, a lot of fun. Really challenging to not be working in the space and creating with the band. Uh, but era patches, that's all uh, on my website, the link to the album and uh, all that good stuff. So yeah, I, w- I would just say go to the website. That's probably the best place to find uh, all the things I'm doing now. So nine books, 31 albums, 730 podcast episodes, 1200 or so pieces of music. Just as a final quick question then, when do you sleep? Let me Google that. 